good evening and Merry Christmas to you, almost. It's amazing. It's, um, I'm, I'm Taylor, I'm a pastor here, and it's very good to see some new faces and a lot of old faces too. Um, it's amazing. I don't know if you noticed, but in the front row, so the folks that um, lit the Advent candle, the fourth Advent candle, they headed out because she's literally having a baby right now. So we're all amazed that she's come this far, and she said, I'm counting, I'm counting the seconds right now. I'm having contractions. We're in the front row. We're here lighting the candle, and they head out. So amazing timing, and just in the spirit of Advent and God coming as a child, and then Paul, our worship leader, had a ba- Lindsay had a baby, what, two days ago? Thursday morning. So, and we have a couple that are about to pop as well. Yeah, yeah, congrats. Harper. Harper Joy, speaking of joy. So, it's, it's hard to avoid the message uh, of life and of Christmas and the miracle of life, period, but um, of the life of, of, of God becoming, as you said, um, a baby, coming into this world and wrapping skin around him, as I think Austin said. Friends, we are in 1 Samuel uh, tonight, I almost said this morning, it's hardwired in me, 1 Samuel 16, and we're going to start in verse 34, but actually, what I'm going to do, I'm going to pivot, we never do this, but it's a bit different, uh, we're trying to trim things, and uh, we've had a lot of great scripture, so I'm, I'm actually not going to read the text, um, but I'm going to preach through it, and I'm going to ask you to follow along with me, whether on the screen or there are a few Bibles in the back, if you have one as well, and you'd like to do it that way, please. So we're in 1 Samuel 16, and we have been preaching in 1 Samuel during Advent, the, the countdown to the preparation for the coming, the Advent. Advent in Latin means coming or arrival of God. He's always with us, but he came 2,000 years ago to be with us as a human and as a, as a baby, as a child, in fact, as a newborn in a humble, humble way. And so, but we're strangely, we're in the Old Testament instead of in Luke or in Matthew where Jesus actually comes, we're about a thousand years before that, and we are this night before Christmas in 1 Samuel 16, um, and we're looking at the, the anointing of a king that will go on to be someone from whom the Messiah will come. He's an ancestor of, of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes from his line. And so this is his anointing by the prophet Samuel as king over God's people, Israel, and then eventually God will come from his, from his line. So the, the background is this, that I think last Sunday we preached, I preached on the royal we, on how the people were begging for a king and they had rejected God as their king. And they said, just give us a king like all the other nations. And it wasn't so much that God had a problem with giving them a king, but the fact that they were rejecting him as their king, which we do, we do all the time. When we choose things other than God to put first in our lives, well, Samuel ended up anointing Saul as the first king of Israel. Fast forward, Saul has been unfaithful. And so we pick up our text, and, and where Samuel, at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, the very end, Samuel the prophet who has anointed Saul as king of Israel, and Saul's been unfaithful to God. He's grieving over the fact that Saul has been a wicked king who has left God, and God has left him. And and God says, look, get up. How long are you going to grieve for Saul? I have rejected him from being king. Get up and go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, about five miles from Jerusalem. Go to the house of Jesse, for I see for myself a king. And that's what this text is all about. That is the motif of this text, that God sees for himself a king from whom his own son will come about a thousand years later. Um, so... 
We're going to look at three points tonight, the runt, the rejected, and the good news of Christmas. So first, the runt, secondly, the rejected, and third, the good news of Christmas. So Samuel's coming to town because God has told him, go to Bethlehem. It's a really, really small town right outside of Jerusalem. Nothing ever happens there. And um, I'm going to show you when you get there a king that I see for myself. And so Samuel comes to town, and this is the end of the period of the judges. Saul has been the first king, but Samuel is still very much the man. He's the king maker. He's anointed the first king of Israel. And he is a prophet, a priest, and a king all wrapped into one. So he is a fearsome creature. He's the guy that hears from God and tells people, thus saith the Lord. And so when he comes to your, any town, but your, to your small town, it is, it is frightening. So verse four says, the people came trembling, and they asked him, do you come in peace? Do you come in peace? Are you coming to give us a hammer word from God? Eugene Peterson says, he says, fear gripped every heart. What have they done wrong? Who sinned? But actually, Samuel says, don't worry, we're gonna have uh, a barbecue. We're gonna have a sacrifice. And so immediately, uh, Eugene Peterson says that the mood shifted from guilt to gaiety in no time. It was a celebration they were gonna have. It was a good thing. We're not sure yet what's going on. So Eugene Peterson, writer, author, he says, uh, writer, author, pastor, former pastor, excuse me, author of the message. He says, a heifer was killed and a barbecue pit prepared. Before long, the entire village was caught up in something that resembled what I knew as the county fair. So Eugene Peterson grew up in Montana. Uh, what I knew as the county fair, and we can relate to that, right? Which arrived the first week in August and was the high point of every summer for me. And as he said, as my mom told me the story, she didn't introduce carnival rides and Cupid dolls, cotton candy, and the aroma of hot dogs into Iron Age Bethlehem, but he said, my kid mind inserted all those details, and I felt perfectly comfortable with them. And he, inter- he inserted calf roping, bull riding, the greased pig, all the stuff that is attendant with, with a barbecue and a, and a fair, a Ferris wheel, all my friends with their 4-H animals, cowgirls and cowboys from miles around, resplendent in sequin shirt and shining boots. So here we are as Texans, no problem. We can, we can relate to this. We're at a fair. It's a good thing. We're about to have a roast um, a cow roast, and something big's gonna happen because Samuel's here, the kingmaker. So what does God say? He doesn't say, just like he said to Abram when Abram was in Ur in Mesopotamia, he didn't say, Abram, here's my plan. Uh, you're gonna go to this exact place. This is exactly what I'm gonna do. This is how I'm gonna do it. He says, get up and go to a place that I will show you. I'll show you when you get there, but just start walking. And that's pretty much what he does with Samuel. He, he says, go and anoint a king, and when you get there, at the right time, I'll show you who that king's supposed to be. And isn't that so the way he often works with us, is that he calls us to obedience, and he doesn't give us the whole picture. He just says, start moving, start moving. And so often, faith is like a, it's like a, a rudder. We are, the, we are the ship, and our faith is the rudder, and if we're moving, the rudder's working. But if we're not moving, it's, it's pretty much useless. So this really keeps Sam, Samuel, I called him, I just called him Sam. That was probably a little too, too casual. Sorry, Sam, we'll talk about it in heaven. Uh, he, this keeps him tied, tethered to God during this whole king-making process, which we'll now just walk through together in this amazing text. So we see together in verse 6, the first son that Jesse, Jesse knows Samuel's coming to his house. Samuel's told him, uh, get your sons ready, I'm coming. And so this is a big, big deal. So Samuel gets all of his sons ready 
spit-shined, lined up, looking their best, chests out, in a line, I'm sure. And the first and the oldest is Elihu, in verse 6, son number one. Even his name is perfect. His name means, God is my father. And he said out loud, uh, Samuel, literally the first son with Elihu, he says this out loud. He says, surely the Lord's anointed is in front of, in front of him. Surely the Lord's anointed is in front of God, right in front of you. This has got to be him. He says this out loud in front of all the other brothers. He can't even keep it in. He doesn't think it. He says it. He is so impressed. In other words, this guy was a standout. He was probably, as the oldest, the biggest, uh, the most impressive of the group, um, Mr. Wonderful. So what, what is happening here is that Samuel still has Saul eyes. He still has Saul eyes. Saul was a head taller. He was like William Wallace. His sword is like five foot four, big claymore sword. You can go to Sterling at the tip of the Firth of Forth in Scotland and look at it. They still have it. And William Wallace was probably about six foot seven. He was a giant of a man and a commander on the battlefield. Well, Saul was that way. Saul was a head taller than everybody else. He was really impressive. Um, Samuel still has Saul eyes. He's still looking for the impressive king. And he is really impressed. This has got to be the guy. He just blurts it out. Literally, the text says, the highness of his height, his high height. Okay, God says, don't look at the highness of his height, his high height, his impressiveness. He doesn't just say no. He says, because I have, what? Rejected him. Not no, next. Something far more trenchant. I have rejected him. God is looking for a particular man to choose for himself, and he already sees him. And Samuel needs to get God's eyes. And the key text is verse 7. If you have your Bibles, if you're looking up here, the key verse, the theme in this chapter is because not what, this is the literal translation, guys, from the Hebrew, because not what man sees. God is telling Samuel this. Don't be impressed with the highness of his height because it's not what man sees. Because what? Man sees literally to the eyes but the Lord sees to the heart. God pierces all the armor that we have, that we accumulate in the way that we look perhaps, or our resume, or the money, or the things that we surround ourselves with, and he pierces right through that with his gaze as our maker, straight to what's really going on. He says, I see the heart. One commentary, the word biblical commentary, it says, people, Samuel is reminded, are impressed by what is on the surface. Yahweh perceives what the person is really like. Those two frightening words. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, another commentator, says, this text underscores the peril, the peril of our impression. God looks deeper. He looks beneath the surface. But so many times we don't and we miss out on what God would have. We, when we don't see what God sees, we miss out on quality. We miss out on huge opportunity. Tim Keller, I almost... I, he and C.S. Lewis, between the two of them, I, I don't know that I quote anybody else, okay? Uh, he makes it again in this, in this little sermon. He, he talks about this in, when he was pastor for 30-plus years in Manhattan. Just year after year, time after time, he would see quality, typically women, but men and women who would get passed over. So such depth and such quality of character and kindness and love and so many amazing things, but maybe they weren't as impressive on the outside, and, and in New York, and in any big city, certainly, wherever there are humans, really, but in a big city like Manhattan, you know, um, glitz and, and show and impressiveness is a big deal. And so he just said, I saw so many, so many people get passed up, and it was a pity over the years, because we see on the surface, we see with the eyes, or we see to the eyes, but God sees to the heart. 
And, and our, my prayer as I just unpack a little bit of this application tonight is, God, would you help us to see as you see in choosing a spouse, in choosing our friends, in choosing employees, if we're an employer, if one day, if we will be an employer, in choosing employees, not necessarily going with the resume and the first, the gut instinct. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes they get you in a lot of trouble. In choosing our elders one day, in choosing a pastor, um, in choosing companies to invest in. I mean, that, that, that seems like it's not, okay, that's maybe not that's ne- nearly as important as choosing a spouse, and it's not, but it hap- it, this, this applies on all sorts of levels. Think about Enron, how impressive in so many ways that was, but how it was just rotting underneath. Um, it's not that God's against good looks and outward impressiveness in general. He's not. It's just that they don't matter. Good looks do not matter to God. The heart does. He sees it. He sees the heart, he sees the character, and he cares. Now, this should, friends, this should both encourage us and scare the daylights. I literally said scare the hell. That's a literal, it should scare the hell out of us. It should both encourage and scare us really, really badly. It should encourage us because we want to, if God is, we want to know that he's a God that cares about the real us, about who we really are, and that he knows us deep down, and that he cares about us. If God's not like that, then what's the point? But it should also frighten us because the fact is from this text we know and from the scriptures we know that God knows the real you. He knows the real me and he cares about it. He sees past the appearances and he looks right into your heart. He knows what your motives are. He knows you more than you know you. And that's a problem because there's a lot of mess wrapped up in the real me. Okay, so let's just leave that there for now, unresolved. Son number two in verse eight, Abinadab, and it says, and he passed before Samuel. So it's like a beauty pageant or an NFL combine, take your pick of metaphors. Um, There's a real sense of examination, right? Jesse's got his seven sons lined up and he's just letting them go. And they're passing before Samuel's gaze, but that's not what counts because Samuel doesn't have the eyes to see yet, but God does. These men are each passing before the living God and he sees to their core. And Samuel said, this one also, Yahweh, the name for God, has not chosen. It's a little less severe than I have rejected him. But God is telling us something here. Um, he's, he's giving this king that he's going after for himself more than a nod. It's a choosing. It's full of intention. It's full of purpose and forethought and design. God doesn't give you a nod. Check if you're his. He chooses you. He has purpose for you that it's long contemplated. He has designs for you. He cares about you deeply, deeply, and he's coming after you. This is a personal God that is after not, not outward conformity. He's after relationship. He's after love. Um, and we get the sense in this text that Samuel's starting to get the hang of this. With Elihu, God speaks and says, I have rejected him. And then he spells out a lesson for Samuel. Don't look, man looks with the eyes, I look to the heart. But here, Samuel's the one that says, neither has he chosen this one. So Samuel is starting to, to line up with the way that God sees, and he's starting to listen. And the takeaway here, I think, is that we can learn to see as God sees when we listen, when we listen for God's voice. Um, this will change our lives. It will mean the difference, friends, between anointing Elihu, the first son who was outwardly impressive, but not at all what God wanted, and God, in fact, rejected him and David, the king who will be anointed. The first son and the eighth son. 
the biggest and the smallest, the most impressive and the least impressive. A man who is likely full of himself, Elihu, and a man who is full of God, David. The future of all Israel and indeed the renewal of all creation depends on, in a sense, this choice. Learn this lesson. Learn to listen to God and to see as God sees. Not to the eyes, not on the surface, but past that, to the heart. Let us wait on the Holy Spirit. Let us know God's word and meditate on it day and night that we might walk with God and know God's thoughts and listen for him rather than making choices where we just rely on our own gifts and our own perception. Now, this is where it starts to get really embarrassing, the text, and where the tension mounts and it gets really interesting. Um, Because Samuel is relying here, this is why I set this up in the beginning, God does not say, here's the guy I'm gonna choose. He doesn't say that. He says, go there and I'll show you the one. And so Samuel has said, he's come to town, he's freaked everybody out, don't worry, we're gonna have a barbecue, it's okay, but we're not gonna have it until I do this thing at Jesse's house. Jesse's gotten all his sons out, all seven of them, and Samuel still doesn't know. He doesn't know Jesse, he's never met the guy, presumably in his life. It's Bethlehem, it's, no, it's a backwater, it's nowhere. And so Jesse has his sons lined up, and all of the sons pass before Samuel. All the sons. And none of them are chosen. None of them are chosen. And so you can imagine Samuel, his distress, as he gets, as God says, nope, after the second one, after the third one. Because it's the same story in verse 9 with Shammah, who's the last son listed. After verse 9, Shammah, he's also, God also says no to him. It says the rest of them, neither these did God choose. So you can imagine Samuel getting to the seventh son and just going, okay, no? Really? His reputation is built on hearing from God. He's told Jesse to get this whole household ready. The whole village is poised, waiting. You know, kill the fatted calf and it's just on a spit and they're just roasting it. I mean, the cotton candy's being swirled and the Ferris rides are out and everything's happening, right? And uh, it's just embarrassing. And so you can see as all the sons pass and he gets the final no and that's it. Okay, do I hear from God? What is happening here? I, I, if you've seen Tommy Boy, I just get the sense that Samuel's, uh, again, he's gonna get me for this one, but he's almost like you know, that, that scene where Chris Farley, he's just going nuts in front of that guy trying to sell brake pads, and he just goes, I'm gonna pull the car and do a bridge embankment, and he just has his hair, and he pulls it up, and it just stays there, and he's like trying to sell these pads, looking like a crazy dude, and I just feel like Samuel's like just pulling his hair out, just going, God, what is going on here? I thought you sent me to do a job. This is not, this is not cool. Um, but what is about to happen shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that David is the one that God has chosen. Because, again, Samuel doesn't know this family. And he sees the seven sons lined up, and he told Jesse, I'm coming. Who knows if he said, I'm coming to anoint, but this is a big deal. You get all of your sons out here. And presumably he does. And all seven, seven's the perfect number, right? So perfect number of sons, they're all good looking. Um, David, there's no reason to expect that there are any other sons. And Samuel's thinking, and he's driven to ask this question, and it's so embarrassing. But he has to ask the question, you don't, uh, you don't have, by chance, another son, do you? What kind of father would leave any son out of a lineup like this. Um, I think of, again, just an absurd reference, but Rupricht, 
from the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the 80s comedy. Like, that's the kind of son maybe that you wouldn't bring, but even that, it's a slap in the face. You know, Steve Martin plays this crazy character, and he has to put a, a, um, a cork on his fork because he's constantly poking himself in the eye, um, and he asks if he can use the restroom at dinner, and then he just does right there in his chair. And so this is the kind of image you get of, like, maybe this is the kind of son that a father is going to leave, just completely leave out of this thing. Um, but it's like the President of the United States announcing that he's coming to your house. And imagine, you don't even live in Houston, you live in a small town. Man, and he said, get your family ready. Everybody's spit-shined again. Everybody's wearing the tie and the coat. All your sons are lined up to shake the hand, to look really good. And your house is clean, because of course it's always clean, right? <clears throat> but only you don't bother to tell one of your boys about that at all. In fact, you, yeah, so you don't even have him home. He's sacking, he's sacking groceries at Kroger on Hillcroft. That's, that's, a, a, that's a, a direct comparison to what David was doing at the time. Didn't even, didn't even get the invite to the barbecue. He's just working. And you know why? Because he's irrelevant. That's, that's why. He's irrelevant in the eyes of his father and his brothers. Verse 11, Samuel's driven to ask this embarrassing, short, two-word question in the Hebrew. This is all your sons? You know, I hate to even ask because what kind of father would do this, right? The Hebrew literally reads, your sons are complete? And the answer is thus, no, actually, they are not complete. There is the youngest. And Jesse's response literally is, there remains still the youngest. And that word can also mean the smallest, and an ungenerous translation can mean, well, <clears throat> there's the runt. And Jesse finishes his comment by saying, look, he's tending the sheep. Like, you, you don't want this kid, believe me. Um, we're not complete, but there's a reason I left this one out, okay? He didn't make the cut. Um, Samuel says to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not go around until he comes here, presumably to the feast. Okay, we're not, we're not going anywhere. I think the ESV says we're not gonna sit down at the table and start eating barbecue until this son gets here, okay? So he comes in, and we get a short description of him, of David. He was flush with beautiful eyes and a good appearance. First, he's flush. Why that? Why that short reminder? It's a reminder that he was out tending the sheep. He was the runt. He was the rejected. He was left out, and he's a shepherd. God loves shepherds. In fact, God sent his son a thousand years later through David as the shepherd of Israel and of his people. He loves people, kings, leaders who tend to the, to the lost, to, to, who tend to those that are on the edges. So David, he's rejected, but he's a shepherd, and God's gonna use that in his being king. And second, he has beautiful eyes. What's that? Okay, the eyes are the window to the soul. Everybody else was looking at the eyes, but God is looking at this guy, and he see, likes what he sees. He sees to the heart through David. He says, I like this one. This is the one that I have chosen for myself. What does God see? Not sinlessness, but submissiveness, a love for God. Recall verse one, I see for me a king, for me. This is God's choice for himself. Relationship is strongly implied, and this will never change. David goes through highs and lows. He even at the worst point in his life murders he commits adultery with one of his best friend's wives and then has that man put on the front lines and draws the army back and has him murdered, essentially. Um, but throughout his life, David will be in hot pursuit of the living God. It's about relationship for him. Um, God wants us for himself. He has made us to be his own. 
So what happens? Samuel anoints at the behest of God. He anoints David, what? In front of all of his brothers. It's so gratifying. It's like, take that sucker. It's a Cinderella story, but it happened. Um, and, and get this. David is not named until the end of the passage. His first three brothers are named up front, but not the runt, not David. His dad doesn't give him a name. His brothers don't give it, but God does. And God gives David a name that is rung throughout the ages. We have a David Baker here tonight. His name's, notice that his name's not Elihu Baker. How many Elihus have you heard of lately? Or Eliab, rather, sorry. Um, uh, but David's name spans the globe. Eugene Peterson notes that um, David's name is withheld until the end of the passage as well, and he writes this. He writes, that name, David, then enters our history. It will be repeated more than 600 times in the Old Testament and another 60 times in the New. And in Christ, the son of David, so Jesus, Messiah, God Almighty, son of God, born of this runt, born of this line, born of this David, this man after God's own heart, comes. And in Christ, the son of David, we too are named. We're not numbered uh, at our birth and our baptism because naming is honoring and naming is choosing. And in Christ, God has come after us. In Christ, God has chosen us. In Christ, God has set his family name, the name of his son, upon you if you trust in him. Um, Keller, Tim Keller, again, in a, a book on the Proverbs, December 22nd, he reads from 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 1, and he says, Paul says this, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And Keller says this and comment on that. He says, great people are wise and influential, wealthy and accomplished by human standards, but God deliberately chooses the people the world dismisses to show how his salvation works. His salvation isn't you do it, you be impressive, you come up to me and shine yourself and get rid of your sins somehow and make yourself impressive. God's salvation is wrapped up in the name Jesus. What does that name mean? It means God saves. Yeshua means God saves. And that is when God picks the people that can't possibly ever present themselves to God in a, in a, in a light that is impressive. He is underscoring the fact that he alone saves. We have nothing to do with that. We come by faith and say, yes, you've done it all, I believe. The Gideon principle, Judges 6.15, is that God chooses the weakest, Keller says, and least likely to succeed so that all glory is clearly his and doesn't come through the agency of men and women. He says this is also a biblical Peter principle, if you fast forward to the New Testament. Of the 11 surviving disciples, I'd never thought about it quite this way, Peter failed most egregiously. So of the 11 that made it, Judas hung himself. Peter fails more egregiously than any other disciple during Jesus' arrest and execution by denying Jesus three times. Boom, boom, boom. Yet in John 21, Jesus forgives him and makes him the leader. It's as, as if Jesus said, because you have the big, been the biggest failure, you have the potential to be the greatest leader because maybe, just maybe now you know that everything that happens is because of me and my strength and what I have done single-handedly in the life and death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. That's it. Um, so we see this running throughout the whole Bible, this principle, this Gideon principle, this Peter principle, this David principle, um, this Hannah principle. It's how we started the series, right? Um, this Peter principle, this Jesus, it's a Jesus principle. And this is a much, much shorter, it's mainly just a few verses uh, point. But so we've looked at the runt, and that leads us to the rejected, to Jesus himself. Like David, a thousand years later, he was born in Bethlehem. He was born to poor-ish, blue-collar parents. They couldn't even afford the nicer sacrifice of a cow, so they brought a pigeon uh, to, be, to be given at Jesus' circumcision and dedication when he was eight days old. Joseph was a stonemason, and a wood, a, he worked with wood and stone. And so his la- last name today would m- be much more likely in our environment to be Gonzalez than Smith. Um, he was, Jesus was overlooked like David. Um, this, this, we tend to think that this characterized his, his ignominious death on the cross, and that's it. But that's a gloss. It characterized his birth, his whole life, and, uh, and his death, certainly. Let me read from Isaiah 53. This is penned. 300 years after David, 700 years before Jesus. It's a prophecy of the Messiah that's coming. Isaiah 53.1, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah is saying, nobody's gonna believe this. It's that amazing. It's that astounding. It's that contrary to the way that we see, to our understanding, okay? Who's gonna believe this? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's strength. I'm gonna tell you what God's strength is gonna look like. God's strength, it's gonna come from David and it's gonna change creation. It's gonna make everything right. It's gonna make everything sad come untrue. What are we thinking of already? God coming in power. He's burning up the heavens, riding on the clouds. He's gonna just roast his enemies. No. Verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant. What? Like a plant? And like a root out of dry ground. You ever seen a root that you kind of stumble over because you didn't know it was there and you look down and it's just barely, it's a nub just sticking up out of the ground. That's what Isaiah says the Messiah is gonna be like. Don't even notice it. You just stub your toe on it and curse it and keep moving. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was so unkingly, so unmessianic, so unexceptional um, as the world sees exceptional um, that when he began his ministry and folks began placing these kingly expectations on him, his parents and siblings came to try to get him from the people that were following him because they thought he was loco. They thought he was crazy and they really just wanted to take him home and put him in a padded cell and put him in, a, in a, a jacket of some kind that was probably a little too tight. He was an embarrassment to them because when he had grown up, he had never shown anything other than just a faithful son, just very normal, extremely overlooked, working with, working with wood and stone for the great majority of his life, for 20 plus years. His ministry was only three. And I'll close with that, with that bit uh, in just a second. So um, his neighbors that he grew up around, they, they wanted to, in Nazareth, when he announced his ministry, they wanted to push him off the cliff because surely you can't be the one that we've been waiting for, the one that scriptures talk about. You're too normal, you're too ordinary. We've seen you grow up. Isn't Joseph your dad and Mary your mom? And we know you're, our kids have played, you've played in our house. So ordinary, so overlooked, but it gets worse. He's worse than overlooked. Our Messiah was hated. Verse three of the same text in Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why was he overlooked, friends? Why was he rejected? Why did he come this way? According to God's perfect plan, here it is. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, two things before getting to the good news of Christmas, three quick points and I'm done, okay? If he had come as he truly is, full of glory and beauty and splendor and power, we never would have been able to crucify him and we never would have wanted to because we would have fallen on our faces and worshiped him. Because we were able to crucify him and did indeed, because that's how offensive God is to me in my flesh because I wanna be the king and don't you get in my way. He allowed himself in being not only overlooked but rejected to be crucified and through the cross, he took what we deserve and became a vicarious sacrifice for us. Secondly, again, his whole life was rejection, not just his death. You ever thought about, thought about the simple fact that only Jesus out of all of his siblings, and I think he had at least seven, um, only Jesus would not have looked like Joseph. And so, I mean, even villagers can count to nine, y'all. Where he grew up, they knew, okay, you, got, you have not been married for, uh, for nine months. Joseph married after Mary. He married Mary. He took Mary to him to be his wife after she had become uh, pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And so they, they knew either you guys uh, had sex out of wedlock and this is, this, is, this is not right, or Joseph's not your dad at all. He grew up under that shadow, under that rejection. Um, and because of that, because all of his life and his death was a rejection, he, he took that on for us so that, he, so that he could be rejected in the eyes of others and on the cross in the eyes even of his father. So that no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've done, the true depths of who we are, he can look at us, he can know us as our God and maker, and he can set his love upon us. When we trust in Christ, he sees Christ, and his Holy Spirit comes into us by faith, and we begin to be made like Jesus. And as that happens, we become the true version of ourselves that God made us to be. And that is the self-fulfillment that we've all been looking for because we were made to be known by our maker and to be loved. And only Jesus makes sense of that. Lastly, the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas. Again, I just, I just said it. The first thing is that we can be, because of the incarnation, because God has become a man, we can be fully known and fully loved because he was rejected so that we might be accepted. Um, there's an old uh, church father, I think fourth century, who said, what is not assumed is not healed. In other words, what is not taken up cannot be, is not healed. And so Christ, if he had just, he didn't come as a fully formed man. He came as a baby and lived a full life, did ordinary things, grew up into a man, had ministry, was rejected, and died. So from birth, life, all the way to death, um, he represents us in every way, not only in his death that we deserve, but in his life of obedience and love to the Father. And when we trust in Christ, that is counted to us in our place by faith it's received as righteousness. Um, secondly, God has a special heart. The good news of Christmas is that God has a special heart for the low, for the runt, for the rejected, for the left out. A special love and a special heart. And here's the thing, we should too, just by way of application. We should too. Let me list off a few. For children, often overlooked. I often overlook my own children when I'm just doing other stuff, texting, calling, da, 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 yeah, yeah, you're always talking, Legos, cool. 
and man, that's not right, but as, as humans, and especially in Jesus' day, man, we had a tendency just to look right over. They're small, they're powerless, especially if they're being abused or persecuted in any way. We ought to have a heart for the children to get on their level and to help and to do justice for them and to love them with a special love like Jesus did. For the old, especially in our society, it's all about the shiny and the bright and the new and the good looking. For the poor, for the persecuted, for the immigrant and the refugee, for those that are sex trafficked, for the lost, you can, have, you can be rich as Chrysus and have all the money in the world and you can lose your soul. And in the eyes of God, if you are not hid in Christ, you are poor. If you don't know your maker and you are headed to eternal separation from him in anguish, the anguish that Christ took for you on the cross, you are poor. You are wretchedly poor and he came for you to be rejected so you could be made wealthy, to lose everything so you could gain everything. And finally, the last application point, and then I'm done and we'll turn off the lights and light the candles and sing one more song. Um, Because of David, because of Jesus, our ordinary life matters. Not just Sundays, not just preaching or teaching, not just, I feel like a lot of us have this sort of hidden guilt or mentality within us that we don't articulate and share, certainly not with the pastor, and so we feel kind of guilty and second rate as believers, as the church, as the people of God a lot, because we think that unless I'm sharing my faith expressly or teaching the Bible or reading the Bible or praying, doing something ostensibly holy, right, or spiritual, then what I'm doing isn't worship. What I'm doing doesn't count. What I'm doing doesn't really, it's not a team for God, false. God cares about the ordinary. Peterson writes, it's highly significant and not sufficiently remarked that this David story The story that provides more plot and details, more characters and landscape than any other in Scripture to show us how to live entirely before God and in response to God, it features what? An ordinary person. David is extremely ordinary, okay? Not just overlooked, but ordinary. The incarnation still has a special eye to the low, the down and out, those on the edges, but it also has something so so important, I think life-changing to say about ordinary, everyday living. The fact that, again, this is what I close with, that God came not as a full-grown adult just to perform miracles and then die for us as our atoning sacrifice for our sins, but he what? He came, this is why we're here. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Christmas, the incarnation, the wonder of Christmas, the reason the angels sang in the heavens to the shepherds, glory on high, in excelsis Deo, is this, that God came as a baby and that that means, and he lived a whole life which means he puts his divine impress on all of life, from birth through adulthood to death. He says again, as he said in the beginning, but in a more profound way, it is good over all creation and over all the nooks and crannies of our everyday lives, okay? Now listen to this. Julie Canlis says this in her excellent little book, A Theology of the Ordinary. She says, and I finish with this quote, human life and human flourishing are a form of worship as they happen in God's temple, which is to be all of creation in Christ. All of life is spiritual. Work, bearing children, which Lauren and Austin are in the process of doing right now. All of life is spiritual. Work, bearing children, hobbies, friendship, repairing gutters, commuting. This is our worship, the offering of our everyday stuff to God. The birth of the Son of God, the incarnation makes this true. 
He has entered not only our lowest state and more, but every nook and cranny of our normal lives. And this lifts all that we do to the level of worship. So let's offer all of ourselves to him as such. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas to you.